You're listening to the What We Were podcast. This podcast is devoted to looking at important events and issues that affect us from around the world and that cry out for a new perspective that breaks the binary we often find ourselves trapped in. Our goal in doing so is to arrive just a few steps closer to what might be called the truth. Welcome. Okay, so today we're talking about this Hidden Tribes report that came out in late 2018. So a little background is, I think it was October 2018, an American nonprofit called More in Common released a study called Hidden Tribes. And it was a study aimed at, you know, understanding the dynamics of the social and political polarization in America. Now, I've known about this report for a few years, and I find it fascinating. But, you know, it seems to make more and more sense every year. And it honestly makes me sad <laughs> that it's not talked about more often or studied by, you know, our political leaders, because I think if they were actually aware of how Americans are divided and why Americans are divided and actually see themselves reflected in a study like this, they would actually have some understanding of how to unite us if that's if that's even their goal. I mean, if you're if you read this study, if you're if you're not a complete narcissist and you're reading this report, you should, you know, it should be a little bit like looking in the mirror at times. You should you really should hear echoes of yourself here and there as you're going through this report. For me, this report, it reads like a how-to manual for uniting Americans. And the biggest takeaway for me is that if a presidential candidate can succeed at uniting just one specific subset of Americans identified in this report, he or she is likely to win the White House. What subset am I referring to? Hidden Tribes calls them the politically disengaged. They represent 26% of the voting eligible population of the United States. Now, for the most part, you know, unless the competition is between four or more candidates, you can't win an election with just 26% of the vote. But the politically disengaged are, I believe, kind of like the cornerstone of a broader subset called the exhausted majority. These are terms come up with that were invented by the authors of the report. Now, the exhausted majority represents something like 67% of eligible voters. And I'll get into who they are in a little bit. But I think if you can unlock the politically disengaged, the 26% of eligible voters who have effectively tuned out of our politics. I think enough of the rest of the exhausted majority will follow that will add up to a 
plurality of the vote in a three-person race. So if you can connect with that 26% of the voting eligible population identified as the politically disengaged, I think that enough of the rest of that exhausted majority of which they're a part will come along with you. That's my working theory. So if you unlock that politically disengaged, the exhausted majority is going to follow. And in a three-person race, you can easily get a plurality from that. So I think something north of 35% is is possible in a three-person race. Now, just hearing that phrase, exhausted majority, you know, you might instantly identify with that group. You know, so I just I would just say wait and see and and be honest with yourself, you know, where you fit in in these groups. You might surprise yourself. Even though I'm sure most people who are listening probably are exhausted. Uh, you just may not fall into this exact category. But according to the study authors, the exhausted majority share four main attributes. First, they are more ideologically flexible. They support finding political compromise. They are fatigued by U.S. politics today. And they feel forgotten in political debate. Now, for those of you who check all four of those boxes, you are part of the exhausted majority identified in this report. Others, you know, you may feel exhausted, but you can't check all four of those boxes. I know, I know for me, it's like, uh, you know, ideologically flexible. <laughs> it's a pretty loaded term for me. And there are certain issues that, if I'm honest, I will not compromise on. There are first principle issues that I just won't compromise on. And so if that's you too, I think, you know, you don't technically belong to the exhausted majority as defined by this report, but you're still exhausted right? And maybe maybe you're willing to set aside some concerns in order to just not be exhausted anymore, in order to make, to uh, gain some ground on, on some issues. That's me. You know, I'm not, admittedly, I'm not very ideologically flexible. And yet, I am so exhausted. And I think the situation is so dire in our country that I would be willing to set aside some of my priorities temporarily in order to vote for someone who unites us and can make progress on other priorities. Now, assuming I'm not alone in that way of thinking, that just means that the potential voters who are up for grabs is actually greater than 67%, which is honestly hard to believe <laughs> given, you know, the past, you know, 10 plus presidential elections we've had. But at the same time, you know, that seems to track with what I see and hear from people I speak to and the conversations that I have and, and maybe in the conversations that you have, it does seem like it's it's greater than, you know, 67%. It's more than two thirds who are just thinking like, gosh, you know, if we could just get somebody decent in office, that would be a win. So, you know, if, you're, if your conversations are like anything like mine, 
know, you're hearing that a large majority of Americans just want a decent, independent-minded human being to lead our country. That would be nice. And that person's stance on this or that issue is not the determining factor in our votes. We would just settle for somebody who's decent. So how politically disengaged or exhausted are these two subsets? Well, an amateur cartographer named uh, Philip Kearney produced a map based on data from the 2018 presidential election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. In that election, this is an established fact, only 56% of eligible voters cast a ballot. Now, what Kearney's map illustrates for us is he basically he basically hypothesized, like, if you could put nobody on the ballot, how would nobody do on the ballot? So what his map illustrates is that if nobody were on the ballot, if nobody were an option on the ballot in the 2018 election, nobody would have won the election in a historic landslide. By his calculations, it would have been uh, 445 electoral votes for nobody compared to uh, 72 for Hillary Clinton and 21 for Donald Trump. In other words, millions of eligible voters are staying home on election day because they either don't think their vote makes a difference or they're so disappointed in the in the choices of candidates that they see no point in voting. I think we've been aware for a long time now of the fact that you know a large percentage of Americans don't actually vote. But this, you know, the Hidden Tribes report is as far as I know, it's the first major effort to actually understand who those people are and why they aren't voting. Apathy was my assumption for a long time. And that may be partially true. But, you know, after reading the Hidden Tribes report, I think exhaustion is a better word to describe most of these people. An exhausted, eligible voter still cares and could be convinced to participate. But not if it's a choice between, you know, the lesser of two evils. Or if it seems like, you know, their preferred candidate just doesn't even stand a chance. So why bother? So the Hidden Tribe study, basically this nonprofit, more in common, they teamed up with a major polling agency, a YouGov, and they administered a survey to a representative sample of 8,000 American adults. And they from that, they did a bunch of focus groups and one-on-one -on -one interviews with the respondents to that survey. So the survey includes 58 questions, what they call core belief questions and behavioral questions. It includes questions about people's views about various political topics like American identity, racial justice, gun control, immigration. So they asked 58 questions, what they call core belief and behavioral questions. And then from there, they use a technique called hierarchical clustering to detect groups of people with similar responses. 
you know. So they from that hierarchical clustering, they identified seven major groups among the eligible voting population in America. Okay. So those seven groups are progressive activists, which represent about 8% of the voting population. Traditional liberals, which represent 11%. Passive liberals, which represent 15%. Politically disengaged, which represent 26%. Moderates, which represent 15%. Traditional conservatives at 19%. And devoted conservatives at 6%. So now what I want to do is... You can see that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, politically disengaged is the largest group among those seven groups. But I want to just read the overview of, you know, each of these uh, groups so that you can get a feel for who we're talking about when we say progressive activists or traditional conservative or whatever it is. So this is just kind of an overview of the type of potential voter this person is. So we'll start with progressive activist. Progress, and this is from the study. I'm not, this is not my, these are not my words. This is from the study. Progressive activists have strong ideological views, high levels of engagement with political issues, and the highest levels of education and socioeconomic status. Their own circumstances are secure. They feel safer than any group, which perhaps frees them to devote more attention to larger issues of justice in society around them. That's progressive activists. The second group is traditional liberal. Traditional liberals reflect the liberal ideals of the baby boomer generation. They maintain idealistic attitudes about the potential for social justice in America, yet they are less ideological than progressive activists. They are not as intolerant of conservatives. They have strong humanitarian values and around half say that religion is important to them. Next group is passive liberals. Passive liberals are weakly engaged in social and political issues, but when pushed, they have a modern outlook and tend to have liberal views on social issues such as immigration, uh, dreamers, sexism, and LGBTQ issues. They are younger and have a higher proportion of females than any other segment. The politically disengaged. The politically disengaged most resemble passive liberals in having lower levels of income and education and being less engaged in following current affairs. Fully 41% are making less than $30,000 per year. And approximately one in four have gone without food or without medical treatment, at least somewhat often. They are the most pessimistic about the possibility of reconciling differences between political factions. Next group is moderates. Moderates reflect the middle of the road of, of public opinion in America. They tend to be engaged in their communities, often volunteer, and are interested in current affairs, but uncomfortable with the tribalism of politics. They tend to be socially conservative. Religion plays an important role in their lives, but they reject extremism and intolerance. Traditional conservative. Traditional conservatives value patriotism and America's Christian foundations. They feel that those foundations are under threat 
from a liberal political culture that emphasizes diversity and devalues America's achievements. They believe in values such as personal responsibility and self-reliance and think that too much emphasis is given to issues of gay rights, sexual harassment, and racism. Devoted conservatives. Devoted conservatives are the counterpart to the progressive activists, but at the other end of the political spectrum. They are one of the highest income earning groups and feel happier and more secure than most Americans. They are highly engaged in social and political issues and think that religious liberty, abortion, and terrorism are especially important issues. Okay, so you've heard, you know, the overview of all seven groups. Now you probably know approximately where you belong. And just to uh, make a note here, you know, if any of those overviews of any of those seven groups make you clutch your pearls and, uh, you know, gasp in horror, you should lighten up. You might be part of the problem. If, if, if any one of those groups seems just totally intolerable to you, you might be part of the problem. But you may, you know, disagree or agree more or less with one or more of those groups. And uh, so if you find yourself, you know, in one of those groups, that's that's kind of where you know you stand. But the largest group among those seven hidden tribes are that, you know, politically disengaged, 26%. And it seems likely that, you know, among the millions who don't currently vote, a large percentage of them probably fall in that politically disengaged category. I'm going to go ahead and call politically disengaged free agents. I think they're free agents. They're willing to, you know, vote for any candidate from any party. They're not married to any political party or any ideology for that matter. They're people who could, they could be persuaded to vote for either a Republican, a Democrat, or an independent. Or a candidate from some other party, some other third party. So that means that right off the bat, 26% of the American electorate is up for grabs for anyone who actually talks to them and speaks their language and talks about issues that they care about. And I'm going to say that no presidential candidate in any election going back at least 30 years has really gotten through to the politically disengaged. Because if they did, they should have gotten 60% of the vote or more. In a two-way race, anyway. And we haven't seen anything like that number you know, anytime recently. We haven't seen that number since the 1960s. So who are the politically disengaged? We heard the overview, right? So we have some idea of who they are. Let's meet one from the study, okay? The, the study actually gives a much more detailed analysis of someone from the politically disengaged camp. Karen is a grandmother who lives in California with her husband. She retired three years ago due to a disability. She had previously worked as a caregiver, cook, and warehouse stockist. She does not leave the house very much. Her children do not live too far away, but they're very busy, and she does not see them very often. She also has a friend she speaks to on the phone every now and then. Karen is not interested in politics. 
She distrusts politicians and keeps her opinions to herself. She's concerned that she does not know enough. She describes herself as an in-between and believes that there are good things on both sides of politics. She does not vote because political debate is complex, and she suspects that voting systems are rigged. While she recognizes that it is harder for some people to succeed, she believes that people ultimately have responsibility for their lives. And she's quoted here as saying, if they really want to work hard at it, then they can be successful. An experience in her own life when she, as a white woman, was promoted over a more experienced Latina woman, also convinced her that people can be treated unfairly due to their race. Overall, however, she thinks that Americans are given opportunities, no matter what race they are. Karen is conflicted on the issue of immigration. She thinks that immigrants take resources away from other Americans, but acknowledges that they often do the jobs that Americans do not want to do. She believes in the importance of First Amendment rights and feels comfortable with immigration as long as incoming immigrants do not try to change American beliefs. Karen is proud to be American. She's quoted here as saying, It means I have more freedom to do things that other people may not be able to do. More opportunities than people in other countries have. For her, being American is about pride and loyalty, and she emphasizes the importance of the Pledge of Allegiance and the Commandments. Karen is anxious about America's future. She believes America has become more disorganized than ever. She worries about her grandchildren's generation and how changes in sexuality are undermining America's traditional values. They quote her as saying, It's just too free and open now. People are more selfish, immoral. To fix America's problems, she says, We need people to try and work together, understand each other, and get along but she admits that she does not think that will ever happen. So that's Karen. And uh, I just wanted to read a a few more shorter excerpts from those who are identified as the politically disengaged. This first one here is uh, politically disengaged uh, 56-year-old man from Illinois. Well, no luck. It just didn't happen for me, you know. I've been part-time now for a couple of years. I ran into full-time positions, but they didn't last long. I never did really play the lottery, so I didn't hit it big. I never did, what's it called, investment or anything like that, stocks and stuff. As a politically disengaged man from Illinois, 56 years old. This is another uh, politically disengaged person, 30-year-old woman from Arizona. She's talking you know, kind of about pressure and, and expression and self-censorship. She says, why do we have this need in the U.S. to call out people for appreciating a culture? It's becoming ridiculous. It's a 30-year-old woman from Arizona, politically disengaged. On the topic of American exceptionalism, this is a 20-year-old woman from Florida, politically disengaged. Some people don't know how blessed we really are. We have a decent minimum wage. It could be higher. Education might be harder in places like Africa or Mexico. Blessed is a better word to describe how I feel toward America. This is another person. This is a 62-year-old woman from California, politically disengaged. She said, I'm just afraid that I don't understand some of the questions in politics. Sometimes I'm just not sure of myself, so I just don't vote. 
sometimes they don't think it matters. They're always talking about somebody messing with the votes, about messing with the votes and the ballots anyway. This is a politically disengaged 19-year-old from California. You're not going to know my opinion because you've not been in my place. If you're able to truly pay attention to where I'm coming from, you understand why I feel that way. You have to let the differences come together and see why there are differences. You have to get that holistic view. This is a uh, 56-year-old man from Illinois, politically disengaged. You know, sometimes I see there's advantage. I think it's people who are already up there who have large amounts of money. I could knock on doors and go search, but I don't really think my family have a large amount of money. But just enough to pay the bills and get a little nice home, you know? Now, these are some uh, just some statistics about the politically disengaged compared to the average American. They are politically disengaged, are 8% more likely to say that in order to fix America, we need a strong leader willing to break the rules. They are 9% more likely to believe that the differences between Americans are too big for us to work together. They're more than twice as likely to not be involved in any community activity. They're much less likely to share political content on social media. They're much less likely to be registered to vote. They're 6% more likely to be aged 30 to 44. They're 16% more likely to have no college education. This is uh, from the authors. You know, they say uh, many of today's most contentious issues are framed as us versus them identity-based struggles as battles pitting men against women, American citizens against immigrants, Muslims against Christians, and African Americans against the police. In fact, these conflicts often stem from individuals' core beliefs on issues such as fairness, justice, privilege, and oppression. And this is just another little excerpt from the exhausted majority. This is a traditional liberal 30-year-old woman from Indiana. Uh, She's part of the exhausted majority. She says, It's a very real thing in America where people go to Thanksgiving dinner and you just cannot talk about politics because it's going to end up in a huge blow up. This is once again from the study authors. They say a consistent finding of the study is the contrast between the more tribal beliefs and behavior of the 33% of Americans in their wing segments and that of the 67% in the exhausted majority. The four segments in the exhausted majority have many differences, but they share four main attributes. They are ideologically flexible, support finding political compromise, are fatigued by U.S. politics today, and they feel forgotten in political debate, as we already mentioned. So, once again, the exhausted majority, in their own words. Okay, so this is a little bit broader subset. This is not just the politically disengaged. This is the exhausted majority in their own words and just listen listen for yourself listen for your own self and your own situation and what these people are saying if there's such a thing as a conservative liberal i would fall into that category i believe that there should be less control on things like same-sex marriage and abortions and things like that but i also believe in capital punishment and second amendment rights I fall middle of the line when it comes to political issues. Traditional liberal, 30-year-old woman, Indiana. I really don't define myself by Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. 
If you define yourself like that, you give people the ability to make assumptions about your political thoughts. I am really a moderate. Some things liberal, some things conservative. Sometimes agree with Republicans, sometimes by Democrats. Always try to find the common ground of the common good of something. Passive liberal, 29-year-old man, North Carolina. I'm just afraid that I don't understand some of the questions. Sometimes I'm just not sure of myself, so I just don't vote. Sometimes I don't think it matters. They're always talking about somebody messing with the votes, about messing with the votes and the ballots anyway. 62-year-old woman in California, politically disengaged. Somebody I already mentioned earlier. So what's the best way to get through to the politically disengaged? I think it's by finding creative ways to actually get them involved in the process. Right now, only a tiny fraction of the American people are meaningfully involved in the presidential election. What do I mean by that? In pretty much every election in living memory, it has been a mostly private affair between partisans for either the Republican or the Democratic parties. And at the very end, they unveil the two choices that the rest of us in the exhausted majority get to choose from. And we have to decide which half of our social circle we want to betray by voting or just not participate at all. Really, that's, that's, you know, that's basically it in a nutshell. Candidates for the Republican and the Democratic parties announce their candidacy on average, you know, a little under two years before the presidential election. And they spend the next year and a half campaigning and talking exclusively to their party members during primary season. Then finally, sometime, you know, during the summer before the election, once each party has decided who their candidate will be, then the candidates, you know, start talking to the American people as a whole. So the general public gets maybe, maybe four months worth of vetting these candidates and getting to know them before deciding who should lead the country for the next four years. That includes three 90-minute presidential debates. For some context, Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas participated in seven three-hour debates traveling across the state of Illinois. And that was just for their campaign for the United States Senate. Mostly, though, we get to know our candidates through, you know, their TV and radio and social media ads or their campaign rallies, neither of which are exactly long on substance. And, you know, they're both just, it's just repetitive nonsense. So here's a novel idea. How about involving Americans in deciding who gets appointed to cabinet-level positions? I think this is one of the keys to unlocking that exhausted majority, but certainly the politically disengaged. As it stands right now, even if we do somehow manage to get a decent 
president and vice president out of this crazy, rushed election process. There are at least 15 different cabinet-level positions to be filled when someone becomes president. And somehow, the people who get put in these incredibly powerful positions as head of major departments that you know presumably require a great deal of relevant experience and expertise, the people who get appointed to those, it's just a bunch of other politicians who just happen to be from the same party. And they, you know, you look at their resumes and they seem barely qualified to do a job like that. But they're friends of the person who got elected. Maybe they were instrumental in getting that person elected. So they get to have a cabinet position. It's usually like former, you know, former governors, members of Congress. And they all get chosen after the election. Why? Why are we not talking about who the best people are to serve in those positions before we put a president in the White House? You've got at least 15 cabinet positions. you got Secretary of State, Treasury, Defense, your Attorney General, your Secretary of the Interior, the Agriculture, Commerce, Labor, Health and Human Services, Housing and urban development, transportation, energy, education, veterans affairs, homeland security. 15 cabinet level decisions. And we don't know any of we don't know who's going to be head of any of those before we actually vote for somebody. It's not even discussed. They don't even talk about, you know, a possibility who might be Secretary of the Treasury, who might be Secretary of Agriculture. We don't know any of that until the votes are decided and the president has been elected. Then in December or January or February, we start to find out who's going to make up our government. That seems kind of strange to me. And it doesn't have to be that way. And the first person who decides that it doesn't have to be that way and actually starts to talk about it and put some names out there and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about so-and-so for Secretary of agriculture. What do you think about it, American people? Let's talk about it. They're going to get some politically disengaged people re-engaged because they're actually being spoken to. So to the people running for president, we want to know who you plan to put in charge of the myriad government agencies that oversee and regulate more and more of our personal and professional lives. And we want a chance to vet them. And if any presidential candidate wants to actually get the politically disengaged and the exhausted majority involved, why not start by telling them up front who you think would be a good fit for attorney general, for secretary of state, For Secretary of Health and Human Services, Energy, Transportation, Agriculture. Before the election. And then instruct those people to go on podcasts. 
where they can be questioned in a format that allows every American to tune in and hear what they have to say. What are their plans for the Department of Agriculture? How are they qualified to run the Department of Agriculture? What challenges do they foresee in that position? And how do they intend to deal with those challenges? (laughs) I assure you, this would be far more thorough and authentic than the Senate confirmation charade that these same people will go through and from which we will learn almost nothing about them. And by the way, it's too late by the time they get there because it's a rubber stamp. By the first week of November, before the election, the American people should, we should have had the opportunity to hear from multiple candidates for major cabinet level positions. And our feedback should make a difference in who ultimately gets appointed. We'll tell you if we think so-and-so is actually qualified to be Secretary of the Department of Transportation or Secretary of Health and Human Services. Do they have a background in that? Or are they just a friend from Congress? Do they actually have the expertise? Do they have a degree? Do they have some experience in this this area? Do they have a vision? Do they have good ideas? I think we deserve to know that before the election, actually. So, you know, don't make us wait until December or January when the die has been cast. And, you know, the only thing they have to do is go to that rubber stamp Senate confirmation hearing. So that's one thing. The next thing is do more presidential debates. Just do more presidential debates. That's it. Real debates. Preferably in that Lincoln-Douglas style. And maybe each featuring a different topic of discussion. How about a presidential debate on American history and civics? I would love to hear from a candidate for president of the United States who actually understands American history, who's read it, you know, deeply and who who can recall it by memory. When is the last time we had a president like that? I'm not sure. I think that would be a good thing. How about a debate on our right to privacy? How about one on the subject of cybercrimes and how we're going to put an end to people losing their life savings or having their credit destroyed by internet scammers as seems to be happening every day? How about one on foreign intervention since that's become like one of our primary reasons for being in the last several decades? Why don't we just talk about foreign intervention? Just a three-hour debate on foreign intervention. When is it good to intervene? When does it make no sense to intervene? Tell me what you think. Maybe we should just spend three hours talking about each one of those. And to any candidate out there, independent or otherwise, don't wait for the Commission on Presidential Debates to organize them because they're not going to. Just start organizing one and start inviting the other candidates to participate. Go on Joe Rogan's show, you know, and... Or the daily, or whatever show it is, whatever podcast you want to go on, and just declare that you're organizing a debate. 
and dare them not to show up. And if they don't show, take the three hours and give us your vision for the country on that subject. We want to know. Finally, just give people a vision for the country for once. If you want to connect with that exhausted majority and the politically disengaged, just give people a vision for the country. I can't remember the last time I heard a presidential candidate say what his or her vision for the country is. We all know the times are changing fast. The old world order is being shaken up. If you're a presidential candidate, where do you see us headed? How are we going to fit in this new world? What role do you envision us playing? You know, please, like, look, look five, 10, 20 years out. What do you foresee? And how can everyday citizens best assist in making sure that the, the American dream is alive and well for decades to come? Why aren't we talking about this? This is uh, one more just excerpt that I like from the authors of this report. They say, it is difficult to break this cycle of polarization. Tribal outrage works as a business model for social media, cable television, and talk radio. It succeeds where redistricting has shifted the political contest from the center ground at general elections to the mobilized base and primary campaigns. It is metastasizing from national politics and online forums to campuses, workplaces, and the dinner table at Thanksgiving. The well-documented result is that growing numbers of Americans are segregated into echo chambers where they are exposed to fewer alternative ideas and fed a constant stream of stories that reinforce their tribal narratives. Over time, this environment spawns increasing extremism as startup initiatives from political campaigns to new media outlets seek to outcompete established players through ideological purity and aggression. I'm increasingly of the mind that above all else, the most important thing we can do as a country in 2024 is just reject the duopoly. To tell both political parties that for at least the next four years, we're going to do what we think is best for the country. Not what paid contributors and consultants for the GOP or the Democratic Party thinks is best for the country. And to anyone currently holding political office, if you want to participate in governing this country for the next four years, the first thing you should do is declare your independence from whichever political party you belong to. Because political parties are anathema to the American spirit. George Washington knew that. And he warned us this day would come when we'd split into factions and we'd lose the ability to get anything done together. And I genuinely think it is possible this year 
for an independent candidate to become president of the United States. I'm not going to go so far as to say it's likely at this point because it, it still depends on too many unknown factors, but I wouldn't bet against it. And at this moment, it looks like Robert F. Kennedy is the person who will carry that independent torch. And in order for victory to be possible for him, I think he has to choose a Republican to carry that torch with him. A former Republican. A, I, you know, I, I think if he's smart, I think he'll choose someone like Rand Paul, senator from Kentucky, who shares a lot of RFK Jr.'s views on medical freedom and, and other civil liberties. I, f- I find it very curious, by the way, that Rand Paul has not yet endorsed Donald Trump for president, even though he's already stated that he's never Nikki and you know she's the only other one still in that race. So I don't know. Maybe something's already going on there. Will we see Rand Paul holding a press conference in the coming weeks? to announce his departure from the Republican Party and eventually his partnership with RFK Jr., I think there's a strong possibility. But whoever leads America for the next four-plus years, they should be focused on restoring the Bill of Rights in America and promoting peace abroad. I think we also have to rediscover our character as Americans. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has this uh, video on his YouTube titled RFK Jr.'s plan to make America kind again. It's short, but it's brilliant. And it sounds kind of airy-fairy, but it's true. We're not as kind as we once were. We constantly presume hidden motives in others. We misrepresent one another's views to artificially win debates. And we call each other names. We have to learn to be kind to one another again. To give everyone the benefit of the doubt. To become tolerant of views we disagree with. And to once again care as much about our sacred liberties as we do about the material riches of American life. If we can do all that, I think a lot of those harder and you know more contentious issues that we've struggled with so much lately and that have driven us apart they'll suddenly become a lot easier to solve. For now, the best thing we can do as we approach our 250th anniversary is to re-declare our independence. And I hope you will. Thanks for listening and be well.